Did I ever tell you the story about um, a guy I knew who worked at a car dealership and he took a parrot as down payment on a car? Come on. I have to tell you, I, 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 no word of a lie. No word of so a like lie. Guy, guy, what, like a pirate walks in? He's like, no. I want this car. <laughs> Yar! <laughs> Welcome to the Mostly Money Podcast with your host, Preet Banerjee. This is Mostly Money, and I'm your host, Preet Banerjee, and friend of the show, Ben Rabidou, is back to provide some thoughts on the real estate market, what's been going on, has he been sued this week, how much money could a woodchuck launder if a woodchuck could buy housing, and other questions. Uh, ben, welcome to the show. <laughs> Great intro. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I should point out so uh, a couple of things. Um, I thought Ben was coming on Monday. It's uh, Thursday night yeah, right now. I messed that up. That yeah. was totally my fault. And the reason I bring that up is because I actually had two other guests on today already, and we got onto the sauce. <laughs> you just arrived. You're sober. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, three episodes in one night. I'm not, I'm looking at this glass. I should be. I was going to say I'm not drinking, but you know what? Grab me a bottle, would you? You got uh, it. What you want? <laughs> pick anything you want. <laughs> Give me that Brook Lottie right at the top there, the pale blue bottle. Now, I know you've got a headache, so you, you stick to your water if you like. Okay, give me a shot of that. Yeah, you want some? Grab a glass. <laughs> So we called an audible. We're both drinking. <laughs> All right. Uh, so um, because I know there are a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are interested in what we're drinking, I'm having a, a Brook Lottie, Classic Lottie, which is, I guess, technically cask, uh, cask strength. It's 50% um, alcohol. And uh, Ben is just getting started. I haven't converted him completely yet. You're more of a, a beer and wine kind of guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got a very nice 25-year uh, Glenfiddich, which is mm. quite, quite nice. Mm-hmm. So uh, cheers, my friend. Thank cheers you for coming you. by. Okay. So I thought we'd get started with um, a survey of housing across the country, coast to coast, mm-hmm. because that has been popular with a lot of listeners. And I remember on one episode, we were going you know, almost province by province, and we had skipped over part of the prairies. <laughs> and I had mentioned, you know, there's one listener in the prairies. That one listener left a comment on iTunes and said, hey, I'm that guy. I appreciate you giving the <laughs> overview of the prairies. So we can't skip over the prairies okay, this time. fair enough. Um, do you want to go from west to east? Yeah, or? why don't we do that? Yeah, um, take it away. Well, so it's been an interesting few months. I think the big takeaway is that, in general, transaction volumes are picking up. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely not off the lows. That's certainly the case in the big metros like Toronto. Um, in Vancouver, what we're seeing is that there's a bit of a resurgence in the lower price points uh, off of just an abysmally low base. So you're right. talking about you know, 25-year lows in transactions last year at this time. So it's pretty hard to get materially worse than that. Right. Uh, and so, so it's you're expected seeing, that there would be a rebound just because it was so yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. But it's it seems to be a bit more than that. So I do think that the, the drop in rates, there's been a bit of a loosening in credit. Uh, and I think you're seeing a bit more foreign capital flows potentially we hear anecdotally we're hearing from hong kong Mm -hmm. which sort of makes sense you've got three hundred thousand dual citizens in hong kong uh, and if you were there right now i'm sure vancouver looks pretty appealing right right so i think at the margins you're seeing an uptick in that but but overall i would say prices are still falling in vancouver once you get into the high end it's it's extremely weak so i get daily listing updates where we can see homes that sold And then what they previously sold for. And it's not uncommon to still see homes that are selling for 30% below previous sale prices in 2015, 2016, 2017. Right. So pretty serious weakness, especially in the high end. The condo market, there's still some issues. One of the big concerns, so I I would say Vancouver looks better than it did a couple months ago, um, but there are some serious kind of lingering risks. And Mm -hmm. and part of it's just base effect off of just a really weak weak, uh, comp from last year. Mm -hmm. One of the big kind of remaining concerns would be um, investors were buying these pre-construction condo units at these significant premium to resale. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you could buy this existing condo on this one corner and it might cost you 
whatever, $500,000, just to use a round number. Or you can buy this condo off plans and it's currently just a hole in the ground, right. but in a few years time, in theory, it's going to be a condo. It's across the street and it might cost you 650000 but but this a similar unit that's already on the market is five hundred thousand, right? And so wow. so you were pre-selling at these substantial premiums over resale. It's happening in Toronto as well, but but it's an issue in Vancouver. So he, here's where it becomes an issue. So now you're at the point where prices are starting to fall in Vancouver in the condo space, mm-hmm. and uh, and so what you're seeing is some of these um, these new condo units are completing, and uh, where people thought they would com- be completing at. 650,000 prices have fallen. They're only completing at, you know, 500,000, but the buyers contracted to, to, to close at 650. Right. Right. And so there's now a shortfall there. And so they're, they're having to come up with bigger deposits. Um, my concern, and this is just pure speculation at this point, the developers have fairly good recourse against domestic buyers. So if you signed a contract and then let's say the prices fall and your deposit's been wiped out and you're in you're, you're underwater on that pre-construction contract. In theory, you just be like, well, take the keys back. I'm just going to walk away. Right? I got nothing sunk into this at this point. Right. The problem is that they will take that unit. They'll sell it. They'll sue you for any deficiencies mm-hmm. and they'll win. Right. Right. And that's pretty well established in the case law, both in Ontario and BC. But if you're a developer and let's say you went over to mainland China and you flogged these units, Right. You have zero recourse on a non-resident buyer, right? And so, to me, that's like that's one of those risks that's sort of hanging over that market is is how, like, what potential risks are there in these forty thousand units that are currently under construction, a growing number of which are going to be completing in negative equity in the next couple of years, uh, assuming nothing dramatic changes in Vancouver, right? So, presumably, a developer would know the difference in you know the ability to reclaim any losses or recoup any kind of losses. So the fact that this is happening, and we don't know to what extent, but mm-hmm. the fact that this might be happening, would that indicate some kind of, you know, um, over-enthusiastic development because they're sort of saying, oh, no, listen, the the cash cash cow is coming in. We're mm-hmm. just going to keep on building and someone's going to be left holding the bag. Well, I think the big issue is that they were selling at a price point that was substantially above current resale value, mm-hmm. which meant that you're, you're already factoring in future price appreciation. Yep. So if you do the math, let's say that uh, your bank will only finance you at 80% loan to value off of the actual value of the unit. Once right? it's completed. Once it's completed. Well, yep. if you bought at a 30% premium yep. and prices just go flat, when you go into ref- to, to, to close on that deal, the bank can look at you and go- It's not worth that. It's not worth what you've contracted to pay for it. Right. You, you need to, we'll only finance 80% of the actual value. And which you got to find a hundred grand right, on your own. Right, exactly. So that can be a real a real challenge. Now, the bigger issue is if, if it actually went down in value or if, or if it didn't, uh, it didn't, uh, like resale value didn't rise to the contract price, then mm-hmm. your deposit could in theory be eaten up. And then there's limited- reason to close on that unit. And then, right. then you start to risk people walking away, but it's really only an issue uh, for non-residents. I'll tell you, one of the interesting anecdotes, this is going back a couple months ago now, but there was a developer that was actually paying people $100,000 to close on their unit. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, they were paying people. So you bought your unit and it was like, they were they were literally paying you to close and deliver the mortgage. So it was almost like a, an after the fact discount. So yes, you contracted to close at 2 million, but but because the market's been so soft, we don't want you to walk away. We'll actually give you $100,000 back if you actually wow. close. Wow. Yeah, so you know that at least at the margins, this is like a bit of an issue. Right. Um, so at any rate, all that to say, I think Vancouver looks um, better than it did, but um, still quite weak in the high end. Right, yeah. and, it, and it always seems like the West Coast is the seat of all these different strategies, um, you know, capital coming in from possibly offshore. There's a lot of money laundering. There's a lot of questions about what exactly is going on. Yeah, it's just, it's just weird over there, yeah. right? All right. So that's always a place that we want to keep an eye on. Let's um, Now, what about the surrounding areas? So, of course, we've got right. a few listeners in, you know, like Burnaby, Surrey, yep. Prince George, yep. you know. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, overall, most of the lower mainland is weak relative to kind of the heyday of three, four, five years ago. And most of the weaknesses or the bigger weaknesses in the high end still? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. the high end still looks weaker. Um, but I would say most of those uh, secondary markets in BC um, are certainly not being hit to the same extent that Vancouver is. Right. And, and the, the real pain in Vancouver at this point is still high end in some of the areas that uh, had received a lot of foreign capital flows. So mm-hmm. high end West Vancouver, for example, we still see tons of uh, homes that are selling for 30, 40% off a of previous sale price, which is right. pr- pretty dramatic when you think about it. That's yeah. a serious decline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's like life altering type stuff. If you bought at peak and you're down 40% on a $4 million home, that's a lot of, that's a lot of dough. Right. Um, and um, so with, uh, uh, you know, the different measures that they implemented there, there were some situations, again, I'm kind of focusing maybe a bit too much time on BC, but you had some people who are renting homes in mansions and they're right. paying like, you know, really low rates because the people who own these places are like, I just need people in here so I can yep. avoid these onerous penalties. Oh, you know, as long as you're there, I don't care. So, yep. you know, what do you, what can you afford a grant? I'll take it. Absolutely. So there's, we've seen a dramatic change. Well, dramatic is probably an overstatement. We've seen the rental market in Vancouver soften significantly to the point now where you're starting to see some incentives on the part of, um, really? of landlords. Yeah. Which we really haven't seen in a yeah. long time. And so there's a couple things happening, but the, the big one is, uh, you've got this vacancy tax now. Uh, they're also starting to put some restrictions around Airbnb mm. usage. And it seems like that's brought a lot of supply into the long-term rental pool. And so you are. You're seeing for the first time in a long time, you're seeing some incentives being offered from from landlords. So I don't know that's showing up yet in the headline rent figures. Right. Um, the other thing that's happening nationally, I actually have a view that the rental market, you know, for a long time we talked about this incredibly tight rental market. It's still true in Toronto, still mm-hmm. a, a very tight rental market. But already you can see that the headline rental rate, at least for condos rented through the MLS, uh, has dropped from about 12% year over year down to about 5 or 6%. Okay. And, and what's causing that is we're starting to see a lot of rental supply come online. And so, for example, um, last quarter the number of condos that were listed for rent on the MLS in Toronto was up about 35% year over year. Really? So a huge jump. Now, the number of people that rented condos through the MLS was also up, but it was up about 15%. Mm-hmm. So you had a scenario where the supply came online and it was sort of ahead of the growth and demand. And so what, what we track is the least to list ratio. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a crude measure of the flow of supply versus the flow of demand, but it very closely approximate rental prices. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that in 2015, uh, it was quite low. And I'd have to, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's not, not that important. But, but that coincided with the time where you had fairly soft rental prices in Toronto. Right. Then you had this incredible population inflow in part from people migrating in from Alberta, in part from just very strong international migration. The rental market tightened right up. We saw the least to list ratio spike and rental prices then followed. And they were up you know, 10, 12% at the peak. Um, that is starting to change. Now, so that's it's interesting to me that condo rental supply is coming online because at the same time, I actually put a chart on Twitter not too long ago showing um, purpose-built rental completions. So most people don't realize that because you hear a lot of narrative around this affordability rental crisis. And, and I don't mean to downplay it because it is a serious issue in some of the bigger cities. But the idea that there isn't purpose-built rental stock being brought to market is actually not true. If you mm-hmm. look at the data, what's under construction for purpose-built rental is a record high by a wide margin, by a factor of three. Oh, wow. There's a ton of rental supply coming coming mm-hmm. online. This is an important point. And so now we're starting to see that the completions are ramping up. And it happens to be coinciding with 
a period out in Vancouver where you're seeing supply coming from this kind of speculative element of the market into the long-term rental market. And it happens to be coming in, in Toronto as well. Like for example, in July, there were about 1,500 purpose-built rentals that were completed in the city of Toronto. That's mm-hmm. the most that we've seen since 1993 for any one month. Since yeah. 93. 93. Wow. And so that's coming online at a time where you're seeing some condo investors, for whatever reason, a lot more supplies is coming into the in, into the rental space from condo investors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. My feeling is that that tightness in the rental market is probably, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we're going to... A, a period where rents are going to fall or anything necessarily, mm-hmm. but the days of like 10 or 12% kind of crisis tightness in the rental market, I think is behind us. That's good news. I, I think so. And I also have a view on population growth. That's a bit uh, out there and sorry to jump all over. Cause I know we were doing a, no man, country. this is great. This is great. <laughs> so here's the, here's the issue with population growth in Canada right now. It's exceptional. Okay. That's not the issue. Um, it is exceptional. We're talking almost 500,000 people on a year of year basis. Now, what's interesting is that's actually decelerated for two straight quarters. So, so we hit a peak in uh, Q4 2018, and then it's kind of started to slow on a nominal basis. Now, what's interesting to me is that when you parse the composition of population growth, what we find is overwhelmingly it's being driven by work permit holders and non-permanent residents. Okay, and so this is very important. So when you strip that cohort out and when you when you say, well, what portion of the population growth is actually from like underlying sort of natural population growth from, mm-hmm. from the existing population? Uh, it's not impressive at all, right? So we sort of intuitively know, yeah, we've got a lot of immigration. That's what's boosting. And that is, without question, that is a, a positive for the long term. Mm-hmm. The issue is that the work permit holder cohort is tremendously pro-cyclical. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's connected to the strength of the economy. And this sort of intuitively makes sense, right? You, you generally, as a business owner, you don't bring people in from abroad unless it's a very tight labor market. And actually, by law, you can't unless you can show that you can't fill that that, that job domestically. Mm-hmm. So by nature, you tend to see an inflow in this non-permanent resident cohort when the economy is strong. But the reverse is also true. You tend to see outflows when you get into periods of economic weakness. So in particular, you saw the non-permanent resident cohort was cut in half in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Okay, so dramatic outflows. And then we saw outflows again in 2015 when you saw Alberta weaken. Okay, So what does that mean? As of right now, the non-permanent resident cohort in Canada is almost 3% of the total population. So that's a record high, again, unprecedented. Okay. And so if we go through a period of economic weakness and we see outflows from that cohort, if you model out what that looks like for population, you go from the current lofty levels, which are about 40-year highs, to actually record lows in five quarters. Mm -hmm. And nobody's talking about that. And so to me, that's one of those risks in the economy is people don't consider that population growth itself is pro-cyclical when you're sourcing it all from like work permit holders, right? Because two things happen when you get into an eventual cycle, right? And we all know the economy is cyclical, goes through ups and downs. There's a whole generation that doesn't know that about that's, housing. That's fair. It has been almost <laughs> 10 years outside of a little blip in 2015. You're right. Um, so maybe we shouldn't, I shouldn't say we all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read the textbooks, this is what they suggest. <laughs> right. Uh, so if at some point you, you had this downturn, like you also have to understand what happens to the politics when that happens, right? Because all of a sudden everyone goes, well, not everyone, but a lot of people would say, well, why are we bringing in people to take jobs when I don't have a job? Right. And so the, the whole politics around immigration starts to change. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't, I'm just telling you, it's highly pro-cyclical. And so that to me, I, I actually have a view that we've peaked in terms of nominal population growth. It's coinciding with a period where you have a lot of purpose-built rental under construction uh, and you're starting to see a lot of supply coming from kind of the more speculative part of the market Mm -hmm. into the long-term rental pool through a number of regulations around, you know, vacant homes and Airbnb in some of the major metros. So all this together, I think just points to a softer rental market, not a disaster, not net, you know, if you're a renter, I don't think you're going to be, you know, getting a 10% discount this time next year, but (laughs) the the days of the 10, 
percent year over year gains are, are likely behind us for a little while. Okay, um, let, let's put a, a pin in that for a second yeah. and go back to our coast to coast analysis <laughs> yeah, of real estate because <laughs> no, this is good because this will tie into because I want to ask you about the economy in general yep. and what that portends okay. for real estate. And we can sure. sort of talk about, you know, um, what you just mentioned as well. Okay, so we talked so about BC. Yeah, so let's Jump talk over to about Alberta. Uh, Alberta. Uh, Alberta, so there's two things to note. One is the the housing market um, is definitely improving in the in the sense that inventory is coming down in the resale market and and sales are trending up slightly. So it's so still very depressed levels. Prices are still under pressure, sliding marginally, but but without question, if these trends continue, that market will tighten. You'll start to see prices flatline again. The one caveat to that is that we're starting to see some weakness in the macro backdrop in Alberta in particular. So you start to see business confidence really start to roll over. Some of the jobs numbers have turned recently in Alberta. Um, so uh, the, there's a chance that they could lose some momentum in, in the economy and that could bleed into the housing market. But as it stands right now, it, it's without question better than it was six months ago. Mm-hmm. In, in, and that's generally the case for most of the metros in Canada. Um, so, and then we can skip over Manitoba and Saskatchewan, right? <laughs> no, we can't. We can't. We have to pay service to the prairies. Fair so. enough. Saskatchewan. So just quickly, a lot of inventory. A lot of inventory in the big markets and and still weak sales, but again, trending upwards, but but still very much a buyer's market with weak pricing. Okay. Uh, Manitoba looks pretty well balanced. There's there's not a lot either way. It's not, I wouldn't say it's oversupplied. It's certainly not frothy. So it's, uh, you know, no offense to Manitoba, but there's, it's just boring. <laughs> um, that's the case with a lot of, to be honest, it's yeah, a lot the of The real estate right market now. is boring. Manitoba oh, itself is, is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it's wild place but the real estate market is a little tame right now so <laughs> <laughs> that one listener you're gonna get another comment i totally yeah yeah <laughs> okay it, jump into the big metros in ontario yep. um everything looks solid like i don't want to tell you it's just everything looks really solid right now so you know i posted a chart on twitter recently one of the most bizarre things in toronto to me is if you'd said okay five years ago if you'd said well there's gonna be a slowdown in toronto in 2018 um how do you think it's going to play out? I would say, well, the condo market, you get, you get some issues with condo market with all these completions. We've heard for years about looming oversupply mm-hmm. and I've been guilty of kind of looking at that and going, geez, I don't know if this is going to end well. Um, but it's stunning to me how few condos are actually for sale right now. It's about 15 year low in terms of current resale inventory, mm-hmm. which is, is, is unbelievable. And so when, when I talk to realtors in the space, the story I often hear is, one of the reasons that there's not a lot of transactions, uh, sorry, not a lot of inventory in that space is that so many people who own a condo and then want to upsize to something else, hold on to the condo as an investment. Mm, yeah. And so, and so you don't, you don't get this kind of churn in the market and then inventory stays so low. And, but, and so what is the reason for that? Is that because they've done so well and they say, well, if it keeps on going up like this, why would I sell yeah. it? So that's probably one factor. But one thing that I've heard from people is when they think about selling, they're like, oh, look at the penalty to break this mortgage. Why would I pay sure. that? I could have this vacant for six months. Yeah, uh, before. Actually, I never thought about that angle. That's, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. So um, there's an incentive to say, well, give it a shot at renting it out. Because again, if you can't find a tenant, I mean, yeah. Monthly but most rent- people will break their mortgage anyways because they need to pull some equity out as a mm-hmm. down payment on another property. Right. Um, I, I just think generally it's the, the condo market was the one segment that really never lost momentum in 2018. So, so when the single family market just got totally torpedoed, mm-hmm. especially in the 905, um, condos still held their value in part because the B20. Um, mortgage stress test had the sort of unintended consequence of funneling demand into lower price points. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it stayed quite buoyant. And I just think people have this view that that market, because it skated so well through that period and th- there's been just such strong gains that why not hold it, right? The stock market, TSX, has done what over the last five years? Basically flat, right? So you can't fault people for looking at that. And at the end of the day, it's a levered return. Like uh, levered returns are spectacular. Yeah. There's just no way about it. If you're Both levered ways. five to one, hundred percent, <laughs> but, but, but we've only seen it going one That's way, right? right? Yeah. Like if you, if you, if you own a condo and you put 20% down and you get a couple percent a year increase and you get a couple percent of principal pay down uh, on the mortgage, um, like you're, I mean, I, mean, I, I I don't know the math off the top of my head, but like you <laughs> off your 20% return, like you, you get some serious, yeah, it's geared, serious so. torque. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, 
it's hard to replicate those returns. Do you, do you think that um, uh, in tandem with the B20 uh, rules, the um, with the stress test, there's also a change in consumer preference? Like are more people saying, you know what, condo living is, you know, it used to be you aspire to mm-hmm. a, a detached house, then mm-hmm. it was semi-detached because detached became unaffordable or unattainable yep. for a lot of people. Now they're just saying, well, you know, everyone's in condos now. Yeah, I don't know if preference is the right word because I still think if you gave people, well, I think there've been polls on this where X percentage, I mean, it's very high, 80% of millennials still aspire to single family ownership, mm-hmm. right? But there's just a, there's just a affordability reality too, yep. right? And so you you know, I don't know if preference is the right word as much as just circumstance. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's Ontario. Anything else well, to add about yeah, Ontario? So I, I mean, I would just say in general, the when we look at like months of inventory, so how much supplies on the market versus demand, it, it, it all looks really benign. Mm-hmm. Right? There's, there's not a lot to get fired up about in Ontario. I mean, you know, it's boring outside. (laughs) You know, the condo market looks pretty hot. There's still some pockets of weakness in the, in the single family in the nine Oh five, where you can still find pockets where prices are still 15% off the peak levels. But, but without question, this market's recovering. Okay. So Manitoba, Ontario, boring. Let's move east. Yeah. Ottawa looks hot by the way. Ottawa still, you know, setting records in terms of transaction volumes and prices every month. So Ottawa looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Jump into Quebec. The, the the economy in Quebec has been fantastic. That's one of the things where when they, going back a, a, a few years ago, when they cut um, taxes in Quebec and really, really sought to kind of balance their budget and make it more business friendly, um, they've absolutely succeeded in that. There's a, there's a pretty solid sort of techie startup scene in Montreal and, and very strong, economic growth coming out of Quebec mm-hmm. and the prices are still really reasonable right. on a relative basis, right? Yeah. I mean, you could say, well, yeah, but incomes are lower, but still, if you're a startup looking for somewhere to land, that's, that's now fairly business friendly and has affordable housing for your employees. Like Quebec actually looks really good for the first time in a long time. And, and that's being manifested in the economic data and, and certainly in housing as well. So every month, Quebec, all the big metros print new records for sales, Prices are just just slowly. It's just a steady grind higher, four or five percent year over year. Um, so so not frothy, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say. Um, it's just kind of just boring. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a downer, man. This is not this, like this point in the cycle. Housing is just not. There's just not a lot that I can point at and go like, wow, that's, that's crazy okay. shit. That's okay. You, yeah. you don't have to, you know, make it you know like a huge bull case or a bear case. You can just say what it is, and it is what it is. It's boring. It, Everything it, it is. There's really no other word for it. You get under the Maritimes, it's very much the same. There's a bit more inventory out there, a bit more weakness in the, in, in the macro. But are you one uh, of those city slickers that's going to lump all the Maritimes into one yeah, category? Yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, all right, for my Maritimes listeners, I apologize. Um, <laughs> I would be great to break it down, you know, New Brunswick, <laughs> PEI, if land. All 20 houses that sold in PEI. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We analyze right. each one individually. Okay. So generally speaking, yeah. other than the sort of standard sort of what the heck's going on in BC, um, everything else looks pretty benign. Like there's no yeah, big that's, stories. that's that- probably the word. It's just, it's hard to point to a lot of froth in the market. That's the yeah. one thing I'm hearing a lot from realtor contacts. Um, especially in Toronto, is that a lot of the froth that you saw in kind of 16, 17, um, where you had people buying three, four single family homes in Richmond Hill or, mm-hmm. or, or, or just crazy stuff like that with no intention of living in them, just pure flip. Um, really, that's gone from the market. There, there's some speculation in the condo market, lots of investment in the condo market, but the single family looks very tame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. For sure, that's a good thing. The, the other thing is... When we look at current population growth, so let's assume that I'm I'm wrong for a moment on population. Um, it's happened a time or two. Uh, so <laughs> let's let's say that my thesis on population growth is completely wrong. Okay. Um, I would argue that we are without question under building for single family residences. So if you look at housing starts for single detached, you're still at 2009 levels. So so way below historic norms at a time where population growth is exceptionally high. Okay. So if, if we can kind of cobble through with the economy doing well for the next year or two and population growth actually stays in this kind of 450,000 a year, you're going to, there's going to be a, a, a serious shortage of single family homes, new single family homes come to market, mm-hmm. um, especially in Ontario. 
Okay. So that's something to watch. I'm less concerned about that dynamic in places like Alberta and BC, but but Ontario will have a housing shortage if I'm wrong, because there's without question not enough supply given current population growth. Okay, now let's tie this back to the economy in general. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of talk uh, as of late. It's been amplified about the prospects of a recession, mm-hmm. um, be it from tariff wars, um, slowing down global trade, having an impact worldwide, mm-hmm. be it... Tightening in the Fed, yep. Yeah, um, there was talk of the inverted yield curve yep. a little while, and uh, I think uh, it's no longer inverted, but... It's not. Um, so that, a lot but, of people but, but have it, been... it doesn't... That, that's generally a recessionary signal, right? Right. Do you want to talk about what that is? Like, is, is that oh, helpful yeah, we to can. Your... You want to you know, sort of yeah, break it down? Just, sure. So your listeners may have heard some talk about that because there was sort of a panic around this idea of the inverted yield curve. And it's a, it's normally a fairly good recessionary indicator. So the idea here is, uh, well, your listeners could probably relate. If you go into a bank and you want to put money in a GIC, if you're willing to put it in for one year, you might get two percent just use some round numbers but if you put in for two years you might get two and a quarter and for three years two and a half and for and so the further out the longer you're willing to lend them money the higher the interest rate is and the concept there is just that you're compensating for potential future inflation and and so and and to some extent some credit risk in 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 there as well but um and so normally you get this curve where the longer you're willing to lend the money, the higher the interest rate. Yeah, and so to make it clear for listeners to sort of visualize, it's an auditory medium, but so if you were to sort of plot that where you have your x-axis is time mm-hmm. and the y-axis is the interest rate, yep. so think of a one-year GIC with a lower interest rate, and then as you move further down the length uh, axis, the interest rate offered is higher. So that would be the normal sort of yield yep. curve. And so the inverted yield curve Right. So an inverted yield curve is where the short term interest rates are actually higher than longer term interest rates. So normally in in sort of a normal yield curve, it slopes upwards. Mm-hmm. Right. So the further out you go from one year to five years, it's sloping up. And then from five years to ten years sloping up. But in when when it's inverted, it means that the shorter term money, so let's say one year, might be two uh, percent, um, but then two year might be one and a half percent. Right. So, so, so you get more for lending shorter than you do for lending longer. And that's highly unusual. Um, and it's been a fairly good recession indicator over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does sometimes give false positives. Uh, and then there's also some question around how useful it is because most of the time the recession comes 12 to 18 months after the inversion. So it's not right. like an immediate, oh my goodness, the, right. it's, it's inverted next day. There's, you know, huge job losses. Right. Right. And there's some question around why that is. There's sort of a mechanical element to it where, you know, there's there's a theory that it, it, it constricts credit availability in the economy because the way that banks normally work is they they borrow from you through your checking account at, let's say, 1%. But then they turn around and they lend it out on a mortgage at, or that's not a good idea, but let's say like a business loan at 5%. And so they spread the difference. They, they, they borrow short and they lend long. Mm-hmm. Well, when the yield curve inverts, that dynamic no longer works. So they can't be profitable They because to borrow from you now, all of a sudden they're paying more than they would if they lent it long. And so what it does, it constricts credit to the economy. So businesses can no longer borrow because banks can't make that spread that they could before. So why would they lend? And and so there's some view that there's actually, it's not just that it's this like voodoo indicator that just happened. Like there's an actual cause and effect that 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 hurts the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless, it does tend to portend recessions. So we had a sharply inverted yield curve in Canada for the first time since 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that's that's changed in the last few weeks. It's yep. really interest rates have come back up. But we've also had uh, a lot of people who are just saying we're due. Like it's been long enough since we've had, yeah. right? But I think there's more to it than that. So let me for give sure. you the bear case for a moment. And I am I would admit that I am somewhat conflicted on this. I don't have a strong view on this. I feel like the market reaction was excessive given the data. Um, I was not expecting the Bank of Canada to cut rates uh, in September. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have a strong conviction on where the economy might be going. But I will say that if you go below the headline employment numbers. So last month, Canada added a bunch of jobs. I forget the exact number. But I can tell you that on a year-over-year basis, it was like 430,000 new jobs added, which is the most since 1993. Mm-hmm. Like just huge, huge numbers. Mm-hmm. You dig in, in in under that, and so 
two indicators that I follow. So if you, you think about like, well, what do businesses tend to do before they cut staff? There's two things. One is they usually cut back on overtime hours. And the second is they cut temporary employment. So you're not going to, if you've got somebody that's working on a contract, usually just the contract doesn't renew before you fire one of your permanent employees. Right? Sure. And, and, and you, historically, you do see those indicators go negative before the broader job market turns down. And both of those indicators are quite sharply negative. Uh, for most, I mean, for, for temporary employment, it's the most since 2007. So there are some indicators there. There's some softness in the wage data uh, on a month-over-month basis. I mean, there's there's some stuff that you could point out and be like, well, that's a bit of a curiosity. But I'll tell you what's really interesting is when you look at what's happening in the manufacturing space, I mean, I think it's almost baked into the cake that there's going to be serious issues in manufacturing throughout the rest of the year and well into next year and, and probably some serious job losses because there's a couple things happening. <clears throat> there's a ton of inventory at the wholesaler level. And so if you understand the way the economy works, you get manufacturers that produce stuff, you've got retailers that sell it, but in the middle are the wholesalers that kind of buy from the manufacturer and distribute to the retailers. And, and they're sitting on a ton of inventory, record level inventory. Uh, and what that tells you is that the demand from the retailers is quite weak. And so I think it's a signal that Canadians are starting to, to pull back. Consumption's starting to get pretty weak. But what's much more important than that is that when they're sitting on a lot of inventory, it means that future demand for manufacturing orders is going to be much lower because they've got to work through all that inventory they're sitting on before they order more, mm -hmm. right? Now, at the same time, manufacturers themselves are sitting on the highest amount of unsold finished goods relative to, to sales since 2007 or so. I'm, I'd have to look at the exact number, but, but kind of in around that recession level. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're sitting on a lot of inventory. The people that are ordering from them are sitting a lot of inventory. So you can now start to see in new orders that new orders into manufacturers are, are falling sharply. None of this is being manifested in job loss in the manufacturing space yet, but like it's coming. Like right. for sure it's coming. So you got the cut in temporary work, overtime yeah. hours, and rising inventories. Definite issues in manufacturing for the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's baked into the cake. So, so is that enough? You know, and then, then where is the weakness coming from in the job market? Like, I'm, I'm not totally sure. I mean, one of the other things that's sort of strange in all of this is like, I met with, I actually, I had breakfast with Scott Terrio this morning. Mm -hmm. And I know he was a past guest. Yeah, I brought a nice bottle of scotch. Yeah. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, Scott. <laughs> is that the one I'm drinking, by the way? Uh, no, but no. I can pour that for you next if you okay. like. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks for showing me up, buddy. Uh, so it's just, it's interesting to me how busy they are. Like consumer insolvencies were up 17% year over year nationally last month. And business insolvencies were up 30% year over year. Now those off are numbers you haven't seen. Okay, the, the business insolvencies are off a low base. Consumers yeah. are not. Consumer right. insolvencies were getting, starting to get back towards the highs. Mm -hmm. um, but who cares? At 30%, even off a low base, that's a real move, yeah. right? And and it sort of begs this question of like, okay, well, if the economy is as solid as the job numbers are showing, like what is going on out there, yeah. right? So I'm sort of conflicted on all of that. I would say that um, I don't have like a, a really strong conviction of where the economy is going, but for the first time in a lot of years, you can see these little flashing red lights there, right? That, that certainly suggests that the back half of the year is going to be weak. Is the other thing that's interesting is if you look at the OECD, they've got these composite leading indicators. Mm -hmm. And what I do is I chart those against um, against real GDP growth. Um, and what's interesting with real GDP growth is we're actually negative already in Canada on a per capita basis. So most people don't realize that outside of population growth, the economy is actually slowing. So for, on a per capita basis, real GDP is already declining. So you're already into somewhat of a recession on that metric. Interesting. But if you plot that against the OECD's composite leading indicators, uh, it has a very good long track record of predicting changes in real GDP. And so the OECD composite leading indicators right now have fallen for, I think it's 18 straight months in Canada. Mm -hmm. And the last time that it fell that much was in 2007. Um, so the long slide leading into the recession. Uh, and, and it's at a level now that's pretty consistent historically with declining real GDP growth headline, not just like on a per capita basis, but, but headline. So I think all of that suggests that like the back half of the year, you could print some really weak GDP numbers. Right. Yeah. And, you know, is it <clears throat> as as simple as taking a step back and saying, "Hey, you know what? We've we've borrowed our way out of um, 
worse times and, and we could have had worse performance economically, but people have been borrowing. Everyone's been borrowing and now they're tapped out. Like what, what do you think? What's actually driving the weakness? Yeah. Definitely consumption is, is soft. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the consumer had been doing a lot of the heavy lifting with the question. economy, right? Yeah. With a question, the bank of Canada's view is always, or their hope has always been that you would get this sort of seamless transition away from consumption and housing as the main driver and towards business investment and exports. Mm -hmm. And at this point, that looks like that's just a pipe dream because exports are moving very much in the opposite direction. And there's not really a ton of hope that global trade is going to pick up under Trump, (laughs) right? right? I know there's some optimism and some talk about the US and and the Chinese are going to sit down and try to hash it out. I'm not like super optimistic that something's going to happen there. Um, So I don't think exports is, is, is going to be the big driver of growth. And then when you look at business investment, if you look at CapEx intentions in the small business survey, they're actually turning down. And if again, getting back to the manufacturing data and manufacturing being super soft, we just printed. So um, manufacturing capacity utilization, which is just a measure of like how much of the factories are running close to their potential. Mm-hmm. It just hit a three-year low last month. And so if you're a business, so that that's a good leading indicator of business investment because as a business, if you're going, well, I'm only running my factory at 70% of its capacity. Why am I going to build a new one? Right. Yeah, yeah. Like you're just not going to do that. Right. So, so business investment generally happens when capacity utilization is, is high and rising and, and it's going the opposite direction right now. So I don't see those things adding meaningfully uh, heading into next year. And so you're left with like kind of the traditional major drivers. Inventories are, are going to be a major drag. We already know the wholesalers and, and manufacturers sitting on a ton of it. Uh, and that that has been a major contributor to GDP for like six of the last seven quarters. Um, and so the cons- you're left with kind of consumer and housing. Uh, and housing, yeah, you could see a bit of a rebound because the market is getting better and housing starts probably are going to go up and investment's going to go up. But consumption, I don't, I just don't see it, right? So here's, here's the, the question I have because there's, you know, you've built... You've sort of given a survey of a number of factors that, you know, warrant a second, you know, closer look or at least monitoring the situation. But, you know, it's it's tough to predict cycles where tell me about whatever it. cycle. So that being said, there the That's risk not true, tra- by the way. I've predicted twelve of the last one. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Um, so but here's the question that I have that I think is more most important for the listener. Mm-hmm. At some point, there's going to be a recession, sure. right? May not be next year, may not be in the next five years, who knows? Uh, but the more time goes, it seems more yeah. likely that it's yeah. closer. The odds that it's next year are higher than it's been since 2007, I would say. Right. Yeah, the odds of a recession happening the next year are as high as they've been in 10 years. Right, okay. Yeah. So given that there is the possibility of a recession in the next whatever time span you're looking at, with all the factors that you have sort of laid out, mm-hmm. what does this mean in terms of, or can you provide any sort of uh, insight into what it would mean if it happens? Because you have a lot of people who are kind of waiting for it. There's mm-hmm. negative sentiment is building up. Um, all the cases, all the factors that you laid out. So if something happens, what does that do to the housing market? Is it a, yeah. a case of it's going to be super nasty like the yeah. early 90s? Or is it a soft landing? <clears throat> oh, God, I, it's man. a loaded question. It's a loaded question. <laughs> so, he, I mean, here's what I would say. Um, if you had told me two years ago that we would be here today and you've had mortgage credit tighten substantially under B20 and the stress test, you had rates that did rise about 100 base points off the lows. They've come back since, but but still, you had a material rise in interest rates, and you've had a definite slowdown in foreign capital flows, a dramatic slowdown, I would say, in the major metros. And if you had said th- a couple of years ago that you would have all those three things happen concurrently, I would have said, that's it. The housing cycle's over. Right. And, and it wobbled through 2018. But we're sort of through that, and it, there really wasn't any meaningful fallout to that. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm, as time goes by, I'm starting to just see this market as more resilient than than I ever gave it credit for. Now, what we have not seen in Canada is a job cycle. And so to your point, you know, you're kind of the point now where you've you've seen tightening, you've seen credit growth slow dramatically, you've seen more foreign capital flows slow dramatically. You know, the one thing that has not tested this market yet is an actual employment cycle. Mm-hmm. And that will be without question the big the big tell. 
Because at the end of the day, you know, at one point I had the view that housing and consumption were just so central to the economy and had driven so much growth that you could almost make the argument that housing, if you if you cooled off housing significantly, that it in itself could be enough to to turn the economy. Right? There's a strong view that, and I think it could be the right one, where it's like the business cycle is actually the housing cycle. Housing is just so central to the economy. But we've sort of seen that dynamic in Canada, and it really hasn't played out. So I'm starting to come around to the view that, in fact, housing is really an employment and rate story, full stop, right? Which is is really quite a different view than I would have had a couple of years ago. So even, like, is it a matter of maybe you're just losing your resolve? Like, you know, you've pointed out in the past that the percentage of the workforce that is in real estate related mm-hmm. industries still at the highs still at the highs. i mean it's it's it, when you look at any of those charts on a long-term basis so share of gdp derived from housing related industries share of gdp derived from consumption which is i would argue is a big derivative of housing share of of people employed in housing driven industries all of them are sitting at or very near the highs and mm-hmm. way above previous cyclical highs so that's the thing that makes me stop and go geez you know if there's a housing downturn it's going to be hard to stimulate out of it mm-hmm. right um, but I've softened my view that a weak housing market can really tilt the Canadian economy into recession, which at one point I was, I, I would have said I had a fairly strong view on, mm-hmm. um, but we've tried it and it just, we came out the other side and this, you kind of skated it. So I think the risk now is you do end up in a recession, you do see some job losses and then it just, it gets very difficult to stimulate because there's just so much that is tied to housing. But the flip side again to that is just that inventory levels are relatively low and it takes a while to build a lot of those pressures. Uh, And so if the wheels fell off in Toronto today, inventory levels are still pretty benign. It's going to take better part of a year to get to the point where like like housing markets are not stock markets, right? They don't just change on a dime and you wake up and there's a flash crash, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's a a slow moving ship and there's a lot of momentum behind it. And once momentum starts, it usually carries for a long time. Uh, and so it's going to take a while to get back to the point where there's like a lot of weakness and serious drops in prices across parts of Toronto. Um, but we could get there without question. If there's a recession, all bets are off. Right. And I think, and it gets, you know, like I said, I think the chances of that are higher than they've been in 10 years. So I don't know what those percentages are, 40, 50, 30, right? But somewhere kind of in that range for a recession in the next year, year and a half. Yeah, who knows? But it's, I mean, I would have said it's definitely that's, there's there's stuff happening under the surface that we haven't seen in 10 years. Right. Yeah. So still a bit of a bear? Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else. You As you go on, you, you, you challenge your own priors. And I would say my conviction is still that the, the, the Canadian economy is still so levered to housing and consumption that it, it's still a huge red flag. But can I look across the country and point to these like obvious flare-ups in speculative psychology like mm-hmm. that part's tamped down a lot there's still weird stuff happening in the private lending space for sure i mean we heard all sorts i was in meetings today and it's just i mean that space is still just weirds me right out did i ever tell you the story about um a guy i knew who worked at a car dealership and he took a parrot as down payment on a car come on I have to tell you, no word of a lie. No word of a lie. What, what, like a pirate walks in? He's like, I want this car. (laughs) Yar! I I, I forget the details. He he, he wasn't a pirate. It was just some guy who happened to have a parrot. Come on. And the salesperson wanted to get, you know, hit their quota. And uh, the manager said, uh, why didn't you sell that guy a car? He didn't have any money. Um, And and he said, it, it was weird. You know, he even offered, he said, the only thing I have of value is a parrot. And his manager said, Go get the parrot. <laughs> oh my goodness. And so for like three days, there was a parrot in the office oh, of that's this amazing. dealership. That is amazing. There's no word you know of lie. I, I totally believe it because the stuff that we're hearing that's happening in the car lending space, I mean, oh, it just, it boy. makes, it, I mean, anybody who thinks mortgage lending in Canada, that there's some weird stuff happening. I'm telling you, you got to look it at It is pedestrian lending. compared to totally the true. auto loan market, totally right? True. I mean, well, I was talking to Terry and like he's giving me examples of people coming in that have $70,000 loans on autos that that would sell for 35000 Like literally two X, like 200% loan to value. Jesus. And, and like people are rolling negative equity, yeah. $20,000 of negative equity to new loans. They're even rolling personal loans that aren't even connected to autos right. into an auto loan at like 130% from day one. So you're lending above 100% LTV on a depreciating asset. And you're not really, it's not like you're getting credit card rates. Like at least yeah. with credit cards, you look and you go, okay, well you're getting 20%. 
rates. And so, yeah, you're going to get some charge-offs, but you get 20% rates. Like yeah. you can charge off a lot before you start to lose money on 20%. Yeah. But with autos, you're not charging 20%. And it's it's a depreciating asset that you've lent more. Like it's just, it's freaking crazy to me. So that's sort of, that's the stuff where you wonder, you know, like, like that sort of stuff could come back to bite people. Absolutely. That, so I think the last thing we'll talk about, we, we, th- originally aim for this to be sort of like a quick recording we're now approaching an hour are you serious <laughs> yeah, absolutely oh, um so the last thing i just want to get your quick take on this yeah. um i forget which particular company it was but they had bought the credit card portfolio of uh, a canadian credit card company they're operating it for a while and then they decided that they were going to exit the canadian market and they oh, just yeah, yeah, yeah. wrote off just everyone's wrote, yeah. credit card debt yep did that blow your mind? That was that was crazy. Like how insignificant why, was that yeah. part of their business that they said, yeah, all right, all this money, I mean, we could just not tell them and just wait for them to keep making their payments and if they, they don't make sold them. The, those they could have sold it. I don't, yeah, I and don't they know. they just I, said, yeah, screw it. Everyone, yeah. whatever you owe, it's forgiven. But you wonder how many that, that actually was, right? Because, you know, it, it just, it had to be just a handful of people. <sighs> Like it was I certainly guess. it had to be small enough that there wasn't even an economic interest. It in, had to in be. It had to be, on. right? Yeah. 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 But be really bizarre stuff. Are we just pissed sure. off that we didn't run up credit card balances with that? In retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> I should, man, I should I should have levered off that and bought four condos. Oh my God. Or Bitcoin. I've got a seminar for you to go to. <laughs> <laughs> Is Pitbull gonna be there? <laughs> you know it. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll leave it there. We've got uh, we could go on for hours. Obviously, um, we'll try to have you back more often. You are the most requested guest on this podcast. Oh, man, that's Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's now, uh, you don't really sell your services to sort of the average public, but is there anything that you want to promote? You know, everyone gets a commercial at the end of the Just, podcast. Uh, I mean, I post some stuff on Twitter. <laughs> that's it. I, I don't know. You need a PR tip, agent. Yeah. All yeah. right. So you can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Rabidou, and Rabidou is R A B I D O U X. You are the president of North Cove Advisors. Correct. You sell uh, research to institutional clients. Yep. Um, so if you are an institution looking for insights into real estate and credit, you can contact Ben. Ben at northcove.net. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, or through the website. Yep. I will send you a bill for PR later. Appreciate it, man. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Cheers.